Welcome to the James River Church Podcast. You're about to hear another inspirational message from Pastor David Lindell, Executive Ministry Pastor at James River Church. It's our prayer that this message is an encouragement and blessing to your life. And it's so exciting as we look toward God's Word, and we're going to go to Acts chapter 23, and the message is entitled, Coincidence or Providence? Coincidence or Providence? Last summer, the, the family, so Becky and I and our four kids, took a trip to Montana because we've been on this quest to travel to as many national parks as possible, and the kids are really geeked out about it. In fact, they have little park ranger autograph books. So they'll like run up to a park ranger and be like, can I get your autograph? It's so cool. Um, And we wanted to go to Glacier because we had heard it is beautiful. And so we made the trek out to Montana, and we were staying in the town of Whitefish, and then commuting into the park each day. One of the things we were so excited about is all the wildlife in Glacier. And yet we had heard from people, from locals, that you're not gonna see as much wildlife on the west side of the park because there's a lot of traffic, there's just more population, but you might see a goat, which, to be honest, I wasn't that excited about that. Like a a goat in a national park is a little better. It's still a goat. I've seen a lot of goats. I'm a fan of goats. I just didn't come to see a goat. So we went into the park day one, went into the park day two, and we didn't even see a goat. All we saw was people, and I've already seen a lot of those. So, um, so we're like, okay, this is cool. It's beautiful, just not the wildlife. So some friends who live out there said, you know what, you really need to go to the east side of the park because the east side of the park is less populated, it's more primitive, and you're, you're very likely to see wildlife over there. And so we, we loaded up the kids. You have to drive all the way through the park to get to the other side. So we got there at the end of the day, didn't have time to do really anything but a boat ride that you can take across a lake and you can see one of the remaining glaciers in Glacier National Park. We thought that was, that was great. Sun's going down, very picturesque. And so we got on the boat and it's a there and back journey. So we got to the stopping point at the other end of the lake and the, and the boat captain gets on the speaker and says, hey, if you wanna get off, you can. And we'll come back and pick you up. But there was a line of about 40 people waiting for the ride back. And so nobody on the boat got off, besides us. So we got off the boat (laughs) with our four kids as the sun is setting. And we're just like, we're gonna explore. There's like a latrine and some other cool things to see there. So we were like, we're here, we're gonna do it, you know? And then I started to calculate how many seats were on the boat and how long that was gonna take to, and I was like, wow, we're gonna be here a while. And so I said to Becky, hey, do you mind if I take the two older boys and we just hike back? You know, like we're in Montana. We should do a Montana thing. And so Lika just hiked back and she was like, yeah. Like I said, there's a trail right along the lake, very scenic. She's like, yeah, and I'll take the boat. In my mind though, I was thinking, we're gonna win. Okay, so, uh, you know, I'm here to see nature. I am also here to beat you. So, um, So I didn't tell the boys that. I was just like, hustle. Hustle, you know, like they're looking at things. I'm like, we're not here to look at things. We're here to win. So, so we get on the trail and I kid you not, it's 10 minutes. And Elliot, our second child, 10 years old at the time says, my feet hurt. I was like, well, you're 10, you weigh 80 pounds. So you're walking. So, uh, but I had to be creative. Every parent knows this. You got to motivate. And I was like, well, let's pretend you're a robot. And every time I press the boost button on your back, you run. 
and immediately he wasn't tired anymore. So he, he just, he, he's like, I love that idea. So I was like, boost, and he runs. And then we, we walk, so we're catching up to him, but I'm keeping an eye on the lake to watch the boat traffic. And, um, and then I press boost and he runs. And then it starts to occur to me, every time he runs, he runs out of my, I can't see him anymore. And I'm like, the sun is setting. We are in a national park. We've seen nobody. That's probably not safe. So, but I was very motivated to win. So I said, boost, and he ran. And the next time he does that, he comes back around the corner and he is white as a sheet. And he says, dad, there's a grizzly bear up there. And I said, how do you know? And he said, well, I read a book about it before we came here. You didn't read the book. It's like, okay, fair enough. Guilty as charged. So uh, Owen says, how do you know? And he said, well, there's a hump between his shoulders. And Owen said, oh, that's definitely a grizzly. Definitely a grizzly. So I was like, let me go check it out. I'm a dad. I do things like this. So I, I walk around the corner. There is a grizzly bear in the trail, just hanging out in the trail. Okay. Whew. I'm like 20 yards from it. And you're feeling, I'm feeling not brave. <laughs> and so I kind of tiptoe back because grizzly bears cannot hear you when you tiptoe. And so I'm tiptoeing back. <laughs> but here's the deal. The lake is about like the path between, between the lake and the path is like me to that mic on the ground right there. It's not very far. And the grizzly veers off that way. So we've got a choice. Do you pass him? or don't do that. So he's like foraging for berries and things. So I decided we're not gonna do that. And I thought, well, maybe we should go back to the boats, but that ship has literally sailed. Like that's over. Plus we're not gonna beat Becky. So we can't do that. So we just hang back. And after we wait for like probably 10 minutes, it's getting darkish outside. We decide maybe we should proceed. The, the hang up with proceeding is that we didn't do the one thing that every park ranger had told us to do while we're in Glacier. When you're in Glacier, you pack bear spray. You bring this with you in case you encounter a bear. And we had encountered a bear with no bear spray. So we decide we're just going to go for it. We didn't see the bear go off into the woods. We're just going to believe it happened. So uh, we, we kind of quickly walk, speed walk past that point, which sounds insane now that I'm telling you about it. Uh, and we go about another three quarters of a mile. I'm like, whoo, <laughs> we made it. No bear spray. And we made it. We survived. That's amazing. We come around a turn, another three quarters of a mile, and there is another grizzly in the trail. I'm like, I don't have answers for this. I don't even know what's going on here. And at that point, I just said, fellas, we're gonna have to wait. We cannot pass this one. We did that the first time, we're not doing that again. And so we stopped and we waited, we prayed. And all of a sudden I hear the chatter of little children behind me. We had seen nobody. And a family, a dad and a mom and four kids under the age of six come around behind us. The mom has a six-month-old strapped to her. I'm like, what are you guys doing out here? Um, but I didn't say that because they had two cans of bear spray. And we made it all the way back to the car to tell you about it. So either, either I can look back on that and go, 
well, that was just luck. That just happened. That was just, man, we were super, super fortunate. That was, whew, what a coincidence that they would come around the trail as the sun was going down and we were going to have to live in Glacier for the rest of our lives. What a coincidence. Or is it something else? Here's the thing. There are all sorts of things happening in the life of every single person listening to this message. And you can look at the chain of events that is lining up and you can go, which a lot of the world says this, wow, this is kind of interesting. I mean, how that happened. And man, what a, what a, man, what just dumb luck. And the world looks at it and says, your life is really a chain of arbitrary, meaningless events that stack up, and either you're lucky or you're unlucky, either coincidence or fate favors you or it doesn't. Or, option two, you can take the perspective of the scripture that God in heaven created you on purpose for a purpose, and that he is ordering your steps in accordance with his will, according to the hand of divine providence. It's one or the other. Either it's just a series of meaningless events or God is at work. And as we go to Acts chapter 23, we look at a story that is so interesting. And the reason this story is so interesting is that the story at the end of Acts 23 has no mention of God. It has no mention of any foundational doctrine in the Christian faith. It has no moral practical application for godly living, which could cause you to wonder, why is it here? Why do we have this story? And the reason that we have the story is because it is perhaps one of the most graphic illustrations of the presence of God's guiding hand of providence in the lives of his people, that God guides us through the invisible hand of providence in ways that we could never orchestrate, that God is able through his power to weave together seemingly disparate and disconnected events to bring about what he wants done in our lives. It's providence. So we're going to go to Acts 23, and we're going to look at how God works in the life of the Apostle Paul, because as we look at this, what we're seeing is providence at work, and providence is the power behind the promise that you read in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. Paul writes this, and we know that in all things, somebody say all. All, all things God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. All things. He works in all things. And so as we go to Acts chapter 23, what we're going to see is three ways that God providentially worked in the life of the Apostle Paul to bring about his good and God's glory. And the first way he worked is through providentially protecting him. Providential protection. Let's go to Acts 23. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. So if you're new to the series, you're like, whoa, this was an interesting time to start. Yes, Paul has traveled to Jerusalem and he has entered really a firestorm of criticism about him. And that criticism leads to mob violence and that mob violence leads to him being in imprisoned at the hands of the Romans, and then questioned by the Jewish leadership. And yet there are still some people in that context who are not content to see Paul imprisoned. They want to see him executed. And because the Jews did not have the right of execution, only the Romans had that, they develop a plot. 
And there were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. And they went to the chief priests and the elders and they said, we have strictly bound ourselves to an oath not to taste food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with this council, give notice to the tribune. So the tribune is the leader of the Roman army or garrison stationed there to bring him down to you. So tell him you want to interrogate him some more. You've got some more questions as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So they're disappointed that Paul has slipped out of their clutches when they had the opportunity to kill him. The Romans had swooped in and kind of saved the day and pulled Paul out of the mob. And now they're saying on this second time, we're not going to miss. So we're going to collude with you these are the, this is the Jewish Supreme Court in Israel in the first century. Can you imagine if you got 40 assassins or terrorists, you, and you drove to Washington, D.C., and you appeared before the Supreme Court and you said, we need your validation. We need you to rubber stamp something. There's somebody that we don't like and so we're asking you to validate a plan to kill that person. And according to verse 20, the council agrees with their request. And so the plan is now that they're going to petition the Roman tribune, the leader of the garrison, and they're going to bring Paul 1,500 feet out of the fort of Antonia onto the temple mount to the ex exterior part of the temple courts and th for this meeting, and on the way down there, one of these 40 assassins is gonna shove a dagger into the Apostle Paul and end his life. That's the plan. And yet, Paul knows nothing about it. Paul is sitting in a prison cell in the fortress of Antonia, and he doesn't know any of this plot has been hatched, which reminds me there's a lot we don't know. At any given moment in your life, there are things happening around you you know nothing about. And what I'm struck by in this passage, first and foremost, is how thankful I am. And I don't know if anybody is thankful with me. I'm so thankful that even though there's a lot I don't know, God knows. I'm thankful that when I'm unaware, he's totally aware. I'm thankful that when my life seems to be out of control, he's on the throne. And what I could never plan for, he has a plan for. That's God. And so Paul is sitting in this prison in the fortress of Antonia. He knows nothing about what is happening, and yet God is at work, which reminds me of the words of John Piper. John Piper wrote this, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three. God is always doing way more than what meets the eye. In fact, often we're completely unaware of what God's doing. And sometimes when we are aware of God's do what God's doing, we don't even understand what he's doing because his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And yet God is always working. He's always working on your behalf. He's always moving his plan for you forward. We have to remember that God is at work. And yet, Paul is not unaccustomed to this scenario. His life has been filled with persecution. 
In fact, in Acts chapter 16, you can go back and listen to the message on Acts 16. It was powerful. But Paul and Silas are in a prison. And as they're in that prison, God sends a localized earthquake to knock down the prison walls. And it sets them free. In other words, Paul has experienced God working miraculously on his behalf to set him free from a situation very similar to this one. And there are two ways that God works in our lives. He works miraculously and he works providentially. He works miraculously and he works providentially. When God works via a miracle, what does that mean? When God alters or overrides the natural laws and processes that govern creation to do the supernatural. That's a miracle. We just prayed that he would do that in the lives of people. I'm so thankful that he does miracles today. I'm so thankful he did miracles this week. I'm so thankful we can believe the God of miracles to do miracles in our lives. He's the wonder-working God. I was listening to a missionary this week recount all of the things he's seen God do, and I'm thankful God is doing those things overseas, and I'm thankful he's doing them right here. He's the wonder-working God. So he works miraculously. He also works providentially. Providence, when God works through natural circumstances and processes to do what he wants done. So there are times when God invades supernaturally a moment, and everything changes because God's at work. And he instantaneously or set something in motion that within a matter of days, it's resolved and it's supernatural and people look at it and go, only God could do that. And then he also works through this person did this and that thing happened and then this happened and then that happened and then this happened and then it all worked out. Providence. It's God working all things together for the good of those who love him. So Paul is in prison. How is God going to protect him? Acts chapter 23 again. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of the ambush. Now, this should surprise you if you haven't been reading the book or if you've been reading the book of Acts because the Bible nowhere else says anything about Paul's family. Nothing. But apparently, Paul has a sister and his sister has a son and his nephew hears about the ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. And Paul called to one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? Now, this may come as a surprise to you, but I think that's intentional on the part of Luke. Luke intends for us to hit, it as, hit this as a surprise because I believe that's very much the way it hit the Apostle Paul. We don't know the circumstances around his immediate family. We don't know if there were tensions. We don't know if they were ostracized. We just know we've heard nothing about them, and we can assume that they aren't closely connected to Paul. But out of nowhere... Paul's nephew shows up and speaks to the Romans who are guarding Paul and to Paul about this plot that has been hatched to end Paul's life. You know what? This is an amazing moment because you think about how this has come about, that one thing has led to another thing that's led to another thing, and now Paul's nephew shows up on the scene, and it's a reminder that God has all kinds of ways of surprising you. 
Our tendency is when something bad, when we're in prison in the fortress of Antonio, or when something is going wrong in our life, our tendency is to go, God, I just don't know how you're going to do this. I just, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how this is going to work out. This seems so impossible to me. Our tendency is to tell everybody about how impossible our situation is. Our tendency is to go around and say, you know what, it's big and I don't know how. And our tendency is to agonize over it and let anxiety feel our hearts. I just wonder what would change, what would shift if instead of going, God, this situation is so impossible, if we started saying, God, I can't wait to see how you surprise me. God, I can't wait to see what you do this time because I know you're the God who works through providence and you're the God who works through miracles. God, and I believe you've got something on the horizon that is gonna shake things up and he's gonna set me free. God, I believe you're the one who can do it. I'm waiting for you to surprise me. Who knows how God is gonna protect you? But I know that he will. He's the God who works providentially to protect His people, but He not only works to protect them, He also works to provide for them. Providential provision. Look at Acts 23 again. So the tribune dismissed the young man charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two centurions and said, get ready, 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen, and go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night, also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. Now, this is an incredibly smart move on the part of the tribune. Now, the tribune, as I mentioned, is the leader of this group of soldiers. And his job is not only to prevent unrest in Jerusalem, but then it, obviously to report to his superiors. Now, the group of men that he mobilizes here, we're maybe a little bit unfamiliar with, but he mobilizes three groups. And the first is the infantry. So these guys are going to be the front line, these 200 soldiers. They're going to lead this procession. They're going to be the defensive mechanism surrounding immediately Paul. Then you've got the horsemen or the cavalry, which are going to act as reconnaissance, and they're going to go out and make sure that none of these, no bandits or assassins, none of these terrorists have made their way into the wilderness and trying to ambush them. And then you've got spearmen. Spearmen are javelin throwers, and they're going to stand at the back of this group, and they're going to obviously throw javelin toward any approaching group that would try to attack them. So this is all that's going on. Now, the Bible tells us that there are 470 soldiers accompanying how many people? One, the Apostle Paul. So God provided... 12 times the amount of protection that Paul needed to defeat the 40 assassins that were trailing him. So I don't know what God will do in your life, but I know that this is the way God works. He, he's the God who does exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or imagine. Sometimes we're worried, God, how are you going to provide? And he says, oh, I can do 12 times that. I can do way more. Don't ask me for 40. Don't ask me for 80. Don't ask me for 120. I can give you 470. I can give you 12 times what you need. But that's not it. Look at verse 24. So Paul's a prisoner. You think they're going to make him walk? I think they're probably going to make him walk. But it says, 
provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. This is the over-the-top provision of God, that God not only can provide the defense around Paul, but pro provide a ride for Paul to get to the destination that he has for Paul. This is God at work. And here's the thing, this is God at work in your life. You know what? Often what happens is our view of God's provision is far too small. We're hoping God will help us barely make it. We're hoping God will help us just, just, just let me shimmy through. I just need to get right under the radar. God, I, I don't know, you know, I don't want to ask for anything big, but he's the God who does big. He's the God who loves to put his power on display in the lives of his people. And yet we continually ask for things so much smaller than his ability to provide. God in his providence provides exceedingly, abundantly beyond. Now, Paul knew he was called to make it to Rome. Paul knew that that was God's assignment for him. But just a few moments ago, he was sitting in a prison cell in the fortress of Antonia, and he had no way to make that happen. He couldn't work to provide the means to make that happen. He was a prisoner, so he, had, he lacked any mobility. All of the choices that he could make on his own were rendered meaningless. Why? Because, at least in terms of moving toward that destination, because he had no opportunity or ability to do that on his own. And yet, in the middle of that, suddenly a pagan empire is footing the bill for Paul's missionary assignment to Rome. They're paying for a bunch of bodyguards. They're paying for his convertible horse that he's riding. Like, they're, they're paying for it because God is working providentially to provide. And here's the thing. There's some people listening to this message across the campuses, and God has spoken something to your heart. You know that he has called you to step out in faith. You know he's called you to start your own business. You know he's called you to go into ministry. You know he's called you to do this or that, and yet you're looking at a situation where it feels like it's outside of your control. God, I can't even move forward. I don't even know. I feel totally and completely stuck. Have you ever been there? Where you felt God had spoken to something to your heart and yet you couldn't do anything about it and you're like, God, I don't know how this is gonna work out. God, I don't know what step to take. God, I don't even think I can take a step. How's it going to work out? Maybe you've been looking for something to transpire in your life. You believe it's God's will for you. You've prayed about it, not for one year or for two years or for three years, and yet it seems like it's completely stalled out. God, what do I do? God, I don't know what to do. I feel stuck. I feel stuck. And yet I don't think the timing that we hear about in the text is on accident. When does it say that Paul and this procession is going to start to move? It says that Paul, in verse 23, is going to start to move at the ninth hour, or the third hour of the night, which is 9 p.m. Jews understood that as the time of day when the stars would come out. In other words, just as darkness is settling in, Paul gets unstuck. 
There are some of you, and you've been praying for something, you've been thinking about something, you've been dreaming about something, you've been believing for something, and it feels like darkness is settling in, and it feels like you're ready to call the game, and I'm just here to encourage you, don't call the game on the plan of God. Don't stop believing for what God put in your heart. Don't stop believing for the call of God on your life. Don't stop believing that it's going to happen because just as things start to look dark, God can break through and bring it about in a way that you never expected possible, which is exactly what happens in the life of the Apostle Paul. It's often when the darkness settles in and you feel stuck that you keep looking for God. You keep trusting Him. You keep believing Him and God opens the door that you thought would never open. God providentially provides. Number three, though, God providentially positions. Look at his providential positioning. So the soldiers, according to their instruction, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. In other words, they broke up the fighting force, sent some of the men back, thought, we're going to make it from here. And when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. And on reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium, i.e. Herod's palace. Paul understood that this wasn't just a prisoner transport assignment. Paul understood that what God was doing in this moment is that he was strategically positioning him. Think about this. Paul knew he was supposed to go to Rome. And if he hadn't been a prisoner, very likely he would have heard that from the Lord. He would have boarded a ship and he would have made his way across the Mediterranean Sea to go to Rome. But God wanted to give him an audience with some of those powerful people in the region. People who didn't believe about Jesus, people who had never heard the gospel. Said, Paul, before you go to Rome, I've got some Roman officials that you need to talk to. Why? Because God is providentially positioning him exactly where he needs to be and giving him an audience with people he could never manufacture that moment on his own. Couldn't do it. And I think the lesson for us is this, that God is providentially positioning you. You know what? I don't know where you're at. I don't know what your workplace is like. I don't know what your immediate family is like. I don't know what your neighborhood is like. I do know this, God does. And you might say, you know what? It just doesn't seem ideal. Apparently God thinks it is. For this moment, for your message to hit them right the way it's gonna hit them from your mouth. Because God has put you on assignment. You could just say, well, you know what? It doesn't feel like the best moment for an assignment. Apparently God has set you up. Here's the thing. We miss it if we look at our workplace and don't see the people around us as people we're called to reach. We miss it if we look on our neighborhood and we say, those aren't neighbors I'm supposed to meet and share Jesus with. We miss it if we walk through life and the interactions that we have, we say, well, that's an interesting coincidence. Huh, funny that I ran into them. It's not funny that you ran into them. 
It's not an accident that you ran into them. It's not a coincidence that you ran into them. God placed you in a moment strategically so that they would see the presence of God on your life. They would hear the joy in your voice. They would hear the hope that resides in your heart. And you could point them to the God who wants to work powerfully in their life. It's not an accident. It's not an accident. You know what? As you think about Paul's journey to this moment, what's so interesting is that Paul goes to Jerusalem and it just so happens that a mob attacks him. And then it just so happens that the Romans rescue him. And then it just so happens that he's put in the fortress of Antonia. And then it just so happens that his nephew overhears the plot. And it just so happens that his nephew comes and tells him. And it just so happens that the Roman tribune will actually listen to this little boy. And then it just so happens that they move him to Caesarea. And it just so happens that he ends up in an audience with Felix that we're gonna hear about next week. It just so happens. You know what? But I think we give a lot of credit to an arbitrary, imaginary force that the world calls fate and a fake force that the world calls luck. And we don't give nearly enough credence to God's providential positioning, which is happening in our lives. That's how Paul ended up here. I love what the writer William Temple said. He said, when I pray, coincidences happen. When I stop praying, coincidences stop happening. The life of faith is not a life of happenstance or chance. It's a life of God ordering your steps. Today, he's ordering your steps. Tomorrow, he's gonna order your steps. And yet I realize it's a lot easier to read about providence in somebody else's life than it is to believe that providence is at work in your own life. It is. Okay, that's a Bible story, David. Good for Paul. What empowered Paul to trust God that his providential care was at work? What fueled his hope? Because it's the same thing that's got to fuel your hope. Before this story begins, in verse 11, in Acts 23, Jesus appeared to Paul in that prison cell. And look at what he said. The following night, the Lord stood before him and said, take courage, for as you have testified about the facts about me in Jerusalem, you must also testify in Rome. And you might say, well, that's great. If Jesus said that to me, I'd feel really good too. He has said that to you. Why? Because this word, take courage, is only used five times in the New Testament, and it's only said by one person. It's a Greek word, only said by one person in the entire New Testament. You know who that person is? Jesus. And in John 16, he's talking to the disciples, and if you're a follower of Jesus, you're a disciple, says, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, same word, Take courage, why? I have overcome the world. Come on church, there's reason to have courage. There's reason for you to trust in God's providential care. Take heart, take heart. Trust him, believe him. 
Well, it's dark. Well, that's a good time for God to work. Oh, that's a good time for God to work. And you know how he's gonna work? He's gonna providentially protect you. He's gonna providentially provide for you. And he's gonna providentially position you for his glory and for your good.